0: I thought today that I would, I want to talk about um, something that has influenced me a lot. And, uh, but it's not really a work of art. It's the parable from the Bible. Um, Does anybody here know the prodigal son? Does anybody want to summarize it for everybody? I can do it. Okay, you in the back. All right.
1: A man has two sons, Uh, one is very faithful. Father, he's the oldest son, he uh, stays home, he's the one who's going to get the inheritance from the father, the way the system works. But the younger son is, uh, wants to leave home, goes out, and uh, pretty much leaves behind all his moral values and his upbringing, and uh, lives uh, quite a wild life, and uh, his life just fails.
0: And let me interrupt you, the low point of his life, do you remember the, the actual image?
1: Yeah, he's, he's working with pigs. He he's,
0: the pigs. He's, he's sleeping with the pigs yeah. and eating with them. Like he's, he's squandered yeah. so much and partied so hard that he is now just like sleeping in the mud with the pigs. And that's when he sort of, definitely the
1: whole thing.
0: right, right. And so then what happens?
1: Okay. So finally he
0: That I had trouble with when I was a little kid, because I didn't understand it. I thought it was, I thought it was crap. You know, I thought that you're supposed to be good. You know, I was raised religiously, and so um, I just, I I didn't understand why this, like the guy who screws up um, and then comes crawling back, is the one who, that the father is most happy about, Um, and. I guess it always is, it's, always, it's still mysterious to me a little bit in a, in a sort of religious sense. But um, I found that when I think about this parable in terms of writing, uh, it's always productive. Um, and I remember being a beginning writer and I could do one thing, you know, I could make people laugh. That, that was my thing that I could do as a poet. And I would go to poetry readings and make people laugh. But, but I didn't really have anything else. Um, and and I was constantly challenged by my teachers and and peers to to branch out to like leave my comfort zone. Um, so for me, the, the, the like since jokes were uh, the comfort zone, that was that was if I wanted to stay at home and never go out into the world and never be challenged and like and fail miserably, I could sort of just stick there. Um, so I don't know. When I think about this prodigal son parable. It helps me, it gives me a metaphor for, for allowing myself to pursue reading and writing that I wouldn't otherwise do. Um, uh, like reading avant-garde poetry, which, you know, I, I, prefer, I like to write poetry that's conversational and sort of instantly accessible. But when I, when I read poetry that, that challenges me or that, um, that jumps around on the page or that, uh, that doesn't make sense... Um, it kind of restores my my faith in, in where I come from. So I do this very silly and crude graph, uh, and I, I like to think of this this is, this line, the red line, is like <laughs> this is like who I am as a writer, right? The red line. That's that's what I do well, and if I stay on that track. You know, I'm not going to, um, that's where all the poems in my books are from. And then this black line is when I leave home and crash. Uh, and I need the brush that makes, this is like sleeping with a pig. Now, this part Trying to read and write things that, that I suck at, right? I'm a failure every you know, all every step of the way. For so long, I tried to write uh, tight lyrical gems, you know, or um, or or big philosophical poems that that explain the meaning of life, and they never worked, right? Nothing ever worked unless I was just trying to be funny. Um, so I would I would try all these things and go all the way out here to the pigs, and then I would and then I would get sick and come rushing home. And I feel like this is where I always do the best writing. It's not when I'm staying at home like the like the older son. And it's not when I'm failing, but it's when I'm returning home from having failed. So uh, I just find that incredibly useful as a way to manage your, the frustration and anxiety of, of reading and writing things that are very difficult. And you, you remember, like, oh, all I have to do is just push myself all the way to, to where I can't <coughs> take it anymore. And I'm going to do it do what I like to do, I'm gonna to return to that comfort zone um, and feel like my work is, is the best in that place. So this metaphor I suppose has very been very influential for me. And thank you.
2: stone and I'm gonna actually do a visual And I, but for some reason I was feeling extremely drawn to peanuts after many years of not reading it. And um here's another one. I saw so much poetry in it, and I started thinking about how why I was seeing poetry in it, like thinking about the spaces in between. and and how the the lines break from each panel, how many panels that (coughs) Schultz chooses to have, all those choices that that comic book artists make, um, putting an image with text and and how they work together. And um, so I started uh, letting that come into my writing more and putting my writing back into the comics even, and, and expanding drawing and, and text. I think these are really old, but um, this, I think I cut out, yeah, I cut out um, pieces of panels and then rearrange them and drew things. This one, I was experimenting with erasures, which can be great if you're feeling on the spot like you can't get a poem out. It was uh, a Christmas carol. And um, I made an erasure out of it where you erase words and lines and you choose words and then you make your own poem out of of those words. Um, And then I put them into this somewhat dark uh, peanuts comic fit. Is it really far right? Oh, i The
0: previous <coughs> Yeah, and you know, actually, I can, can I make it big? Yeah, and then bottom yeah. yeah. right
1: hand corner, because it's a lot, it's 3% of the Oh, yeah. Oh. But, oh. <laughs> <laughs> that you can make a smudge
2: This is another part of that. Um, I made a whole little book out of uh, this erasure for class um, with Matthew Moore. Um, so when that when I started doing that and being really interested in comics and how they work like poetry, I started making my So this is the comic book that we made, finally a real, actual-looking comic, a comic book. And a big inspiration for me lately has been, oddly, Star Trek. In particular, um, Voyager, which is uh, was a later one, um, during the 90s. And this is
3: Captain Catherine.
2: Jane, And she was kind of um, the main uh, inspiration. And I I wanted I wanted to be able to let things like this into my writing and into my artwork and not feel self-conscious about it because why not let the things that we find entertaining or interesting into our work? Why does it have to be some sacred certain poetic thing, you know? So I, I wanted to push against that so this is a sample of one of the comics from the book where I used a little bit of Star Trek. And I'll read the poem. Can you all hear me? Okay. I want to open the mouth God gave you, beautiful mutant. Can you see me in the dusk, asking nothing of it? I feel sentimental. I feel like Captain Janeway watching a planet implode. When you sit down at your desk playing your live feed video game, you're really doing a waltz. And me at my desk I follow your lead and smoke a cigarette over your shoulder. Eventually, you teach me how to walk on the floor without upsetting Dave's lawyer in apartment 3R. You teach me how to stuff peppers with whatever we have in the cupboard. When I call out in my sleep at night, you always call back to me. You always, I think, tell me I'm dreaming. Or I dream, you tell me I'm dreaming. And I feel. Also, just wanted to since um, with with Janeway, I let it come into my comics, but I also wanted to write traditional poems through that inspiration. So I wrote this is just the first line of a long poem I wrote, where I used uh, episodes of Voyager and the stories and, and, and emotions and and. Wrote a poem Without hopefully being like fan fiction or something. (laughs) This is um, an image from the book I did in collaboration with Ann Carson, great essayist and poet. Uh, And as you (coughs) can see, one of the little people has a Star Trek insignia. And. um, inspired by Star Trek um, because Janeway is always wanting her coffee black and she's always saying coffee black. Once, I once called the replicator a toaster, it never forgave Is I just you know whatever it's a failure but like I, I think it's great to kind of again like let yourself use your poetry and and your visual interests, your photography your drawing and um, just experiment with different ways of expressing it and uh, this is like another I was just looking through all the things on my computer that I used you know uh, Star Trek things with. Oh, and then the last thing I'm going to show is um, like a poem video, I
5: y'all hear me in the back yeah hi I'm Emily Pettit um I don't know if I want to do that um can you still hear me okay I I was I was born into a family of poets um and I grew up and everyone I knew was a poet although I didn't know it um I I, I didn't care. I, didn't, I thought it was normal. My main childhood toy game was a little bunny, who I called Snuggle Bunny, and he was a poet because I thought that was a normal job. And his wife was a poet and doctor. Her name is Mary Mouse. She's really super awesome, even though she didn't seem to win any prizes. And I have lots of little prizes I made for him. It's complicated, um, but uh, f- so my whole life I'm I'm around poets and I don't I'm not thinking about it and I'm 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 ha- playing a game where I have a little bunny and he's a poet and I'm writing tiny poetry books for him that would get pub- published by m- me <laughs> um, that were like this big you know smaller than a matchbox or a um, uh, match is um booklet match booklet and um i had cr- my my poet parents are crazy and uh my childhood in many ways i'm extraordinarily lucky uh without knowing it i was exposed to Un, incredible writers and writing and film and music and art um, just it was i i took for took it for granted for a long time i I thought it was normal and uh, this is all mostly because of my mother who is a poet and her name is Dara Wire. and um she. She loves everything. She's the most curious human being I have ever met in my life. Uh and it it has been the greatest inspiration and influence to both my work and my life and so many people I know's life because she's also a very serious teacher. And um Something, she never said, write poems, write poems, she never tried to get me to write poems. Um, But she did when we were little. She read to us constantly. And I feel so lucky for that. That was the best part of my childhood, I think, was being read to uh, constantly. And she would take us to really weird places. Like... My brother became obsessed with the Civil War at some point, and we had to go to the Gettysburg-something reunion for three days. It was very hot. A reenactment. Oh, I said reunion. <laughs> Re- the the Gettys- Yeah, a reenactment. Thousands of people. Um, not, and at the time, I think I was 12 or 13, and I was just like, this is so lame. Oh, my God, what am I do? Why am I here? My parents are so weird, my brother is weird, and if I go if I went now, I know I would be fascinated. I mean, I would just probably be over the moon fascinated because uh, reenactors are fascinating, and especially these reenactors, many of whom were trying to eat in a period way in addition to live in in this period manner um Or my parents are so weird that when I was 12, I got tickets to go see Coolio. Does anyone know who Coolio is? He's a rapper who's bad, but at the time he had a song that I really loved and he came to Smith College near where I lived and I got four tickets to go see him and then I just couldn't figure out what friends to to go with me without causing problems. So I brought my mom and my stepfather and my little brother. <laughs> and the Fugees were opening for Coolio and this is before does anybody know who the Fujis are? The Fujis are an extraordinarily wonderful rap group that are no longer together, but they have an album called The Score which I would highly recommend. It's it's a Fantastic, perfect album. Um, and Coolio was horrible. But the Fujis were incredible. And none of us had ever heard of them. Um, and my mom and my stepfather were not uh, necessarily going to a lot of rap concerts. But my mom became extraordinarily into rap. And sometimes, you know, over the course to this day, I hear her rapping <laughs> sometimes particularly a song by my favorite uh, MC who is uh, an MC named Slug and has a group called Atmosphere and he has a song called I Love You Don't Ever Fucking Question That which she likes to rap sometimes <laughs> um, and I feel so so lucky that she and my stepfather were so open they'd um, yeah, they went with me to this weird rap concert. They took me to a million different kinds of concerts, dragged me to a million different museums, readings, uh, other th- weird things. I was trying to explain to uh, Carol and Bianca earlier how my parents, would go somewhere and they'd be like, I built this auditorium. Didn't I do a nice job for you? Are you comfortable in your seats? I picked them out um, because I thought that uh, the leaf pattern was not bad (laughs) and fitting for such an auditorium. And my brother and I would go, you didn't make this? What? It would drive us crazy. It would drive us so nuts. But they lived by their imaginations. And I think both my brother and I um, try to do the same thing in many ways. And so for me, uh, one of the ways in which I get to engage with my imagination is by writing poems. And another way is by drawing. And another way is with photography. Um, And I have been trying to spend and let all of those things come together, similarly to how what Bianca was saying—that you know, you not to let anything be too precious, and um, let what you love work together. And um, so, my great, yeah, my greatest inspiration and influence has definitely been my mother and other people I love, such as Bianca, who for many, many reasons has inspired me in many ways, and currently I'm watching season two of Star Trek Voyager. (laughs) And it's awesome. It's really awesome. I liked Next Generation when I was little, and I had a birthday party, Next Generation birthday party, which is really embarrassing, and my parents completely facilitated that. And we're like, here, let's make phasers. Um, and, yeah, they, they're they just really weird. And um, my mom's birthday this past year, I had Bianca and a couple other friends help me make a movie poem, or a poem movie, or what do we call it? A movie poem of one of my mother's poems that I, that has meant the world to me for a long time, and so I would like to show that to you guys. It, it uh, incorporates stop motion animation, which is something that I am interested in, and uh, Bianca's drawings, and my brother's musical ability, a tiny bit, <laughs> and this poem that my mother wrote that um, I just think is the best. always happens to me on panels in class <laughs> know that there's no sound.
3: as quick as the lake. A few fingers near a silent switch at the lake. Up higher on hill 11 or maybe lake. More than 11 tall antenna blinked lake. And on blink day and night, who would want to ignore all that, said the lake. At first then there were the robber bears to the lake. And there were different kinds of birds by the lake. I could smell smoke, but smoking eternally by the lake. I thought all of a sudden I loved the lake wanted to go over by the lake. Do you know we went out to sea by the lake? Do you know what went on on the lake? You get an inkling and then the lake. You begin to take a drink of water but the lake. You pay out a certain percentage over by the lake. You drift into other worlds and soon enough the lake. Your hand is like the lake. Your hair, the hair on your head is the lake. I thought lake all of a sudden nearly in the lake. Those trees look weak in the knees to the lake. Someone's father old in his grave from the lake. Real honest-to-God choir boys singing for the lake. A belted kingfisher, made occasional dives into a pond near the lake. And a yellow-rumped warbler and a pair of northern shoveler ducks soon found rest by the lake. What someone thinks someone else remembers by the lake. Anyone will say almost anything appear to, be ra- to appear to be rational next to the lake. It was an exciting week inside the lake. Do you have any plans yet for the lake? Oh, all we needed was just a little bit more of the lake. Friday before last, a little before five, in the lake. Quick, I'm shot through the heart. Please call the lake. I now pronounce you and Lake. <laughs> the girl cut her teeth on the lake. The boy was named after his mother's side of the lake. After so many days of wind and rain, the, the lake came out. And the lake was the way the lake was. And I put my hand on my love's knee under the lake. And my love's head turned and looked into the-
4: It on because I've never been on a panel before. <laughs> this is really exciting. Can you hear me? Okay. Um, I'm Madeline McDonald. Um, I'm the token fiction writer on the panel because we're really reviled and no one wants to read our type of work. Um, how many of you guys are taking fiction workshops here this summer? A few of you. Good. Um, or maybe bad, because I'm about to insult the the edicts that fiction writers often proffer, myself included. Um, are you talking about conflict in your classes at all? Some knowing nods, I oh guess. Conflict, um, of course, stories. Uh, often in class we talk about how we need to, you need to have a conflict somewhere near the beginning to interest the reader, to make the reader ask, what's going to happen next? I, oh, my God, I can't believe that just happened, uh, to make the reader continue. Um, and and I, accept, I accept this fact most of the time. Uh, I think, you know, if I had been sitting there when Mark was talking, and he was talking about the prodigal son parable and being very charming and funny, and I was going like, Ugh and, like, pretending to vomit and being like, he sucks, um, you guys would probably have been like, whoa, that was that was really entertaining. And you would have talked about it later. Um, you would have asked your, your professors about it and about me. Um, and that might have been even better than what is actually happening. Maybe I should have done that. Uh, if I had, like, put bunny ears over Emily when she was sitting there, if I had done something at the surface of this life that we're occupying. I had done something active, taken action, that was conflictive um, and that had consequences. That would have been interesting. Um, In class, I often find myself saying, and I'm recycling phrases that I've heard from my own instructors in the past, you have to visit trouble on your characters, and don't leave your characters alone. And this one is really good, it's a formula. It makes me feel like good at math which I'm not. Drama equals desire plus danger. Um, so, yeah, write that down. Uh, but sometimes then the, my dark secret is that everything I tell my students I never do. I'm like, revise! And then I'm just like, and I never read over what I write. Um, and I also, but I do think, I'm, I'm joking a little bit, but I do think it's it's useful to remember to take some of the workshop truisms that you hear with a grain of salt, because uh, talking about things in this academic way sometimes necessitates reduction. Um, And I find myself sitting down, and writing and finding that I'm writing about a character who's lying on a couch reading a magazine or a self-help book, and once I did this, and the character did this for like 50 pages, um, and I came out at the end of the day, and uh, my husband is also a writer. I didn't think he was gonna be here and had a lot of jokes about him, but he's here. And he's like, what happened today in your work? And I'm like, well, she's lying on the couch still, and she ate some olives, and he's like, what are you doing? And he's writing these, dramatic scenes about people falling off ships and going deep into the ocean and trapped in crab pots, and I feel ashamed. Um, But I find myself wondering, okay, drama equals desire plus danger, but what about those of us who are afflicted by desire, who are uh, long with longing, uh, but who live in a life that is devoid of danger? What about the dangerless lives? Um, There's a book called... In the absence of predators, that uh, the August Carol Pagels Rescue Press published, it's by a writer called Vinnie Wilhelm. You should all read that, and that book takes that question as its subject a lot. What if there isn't any? What if there aren't predators? Um, why, what are we supposed to press up against? Um, and I find myself asking this more and more in this day and age, when, as was. Uh, evident in this room, there's like these devices um, are are everywhere that we're interacting with. I often pretend to be a Luddite and I'm like, I just missed the days of the Pony Express and I would have been taking a lot of laudanum and wearing corsets and I can't live in this world but I just do that because I'm really filled with anxiety and I can't write back to emails but actually I spend all day staring at screens, like staring at the emails I'm not writing back to and then like looking at pictures of Kim Kardashian and then like reading weird articles and I'm just doing this all day long. This is my life. Um, is there a place for that in fiction? And, and my August panel mates today have talked about uh, not being too precious about what you're writing about. Um, sometimes we feel like this is not a, a worthy subject for fiction, this thing that I'm doing. Um, but I'm excited by writers who find a way to, to make those kinds of lives live vitally in their work. Um, I'm also interested in just in language itself. It's one of the means we have to escape the cages of our flesh, um, and uh, and you often hear in workshops the prose should be transparent. You shouldn't have to be too conscious of the way the sentences are made, and I find myself resisting that a lot too because I'm interested in the way that characters might be processing the words, words snagging in their consciousnesses, and um, and changing their minds and i'm interested in being inside of characters minds i'm interested in these like secret interactions that we're having so your characters are supposed to talk to each other but what if they're not talking to each other what if they're just watching a movie isn't it fascinating uh, what might be going on in each of the characters minds as they watch the same movie it might be be a different thing um I, i i will tell one joke about my husband um now uh We went to an opera recently. It was really, really good. And at the end, we got into a terrible fight. He's leaving now, <laughs> sorry. Uh, because it, it was it was so beautiful, and we're walking away from it. And he was like, "What did you think of that?" And I always feel like there's that tense moment at the end of any viewing experience that you've had with another person, where it's kind of like, "What did they think?" And what am I supposed to say now? And how did I really feel? Maybe this is just me. I'm crazy. You guys now understand. Uh, but but I was I was anticipating this conversation, and I. I often am kind of gonna. try to be the first person to ask, so then I couldn't change my answer based on the other person. <laughs> um, but I, I didn't. It didn't really work out this time. He beat me to the punch, and he was like, "What did you think of that?" And I was like, "Yeah, that was great." And I could tell that he thought it was so good, and he was so moved. And suddenly, I was like, "He has more profound soul than I do." Oh God! Um, and and he he just kept like shaking his head, and 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 I, I couldn't quite. Uh, reach the level of ecstasy that he, he had reached, and I felt upset about this. And then he said, well, did you cry at the end? And I had to say, no. And I felt horrible. Um, but I think there's... Uh, A scene in which two people sit and watch an opera and then walk away from it together might not sound that exciting, but sometimes there's so much rich tension that's happening just inside people's minds, Um, and and that's what I find myself interested in and excited by. And I'm just going to read a little bit of a story by a writer called Alexander Heyman. I uh, t- talked this about with my students yesterday, so now is the moment where they realize I've only read one story ever.
3: <laughs> I lied
4: about all that other stuff. Um, but uh, this 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 scene when I encountered it really excited me. It's uh, the narrator of the story um, has been invited to a reception where a famous writer will be uh, honored, and he's deciding whether he should go to this reception. He he doesn't think he's going to. Um, But uh, the scene begins here. I wasn't going to go to the reception. I had had enough of America and Americans to last me another lousy lifetime. He's in Sarajevo, which is where he grew up. But my parents were so proud that the American ambassador was willing to welcome me at his residence. The invitation, with its elaborate coat of arms and elegant cursive, recalled for them the golden years of my father's diplomatic service, officially elevating me into the realm of respectable adults. Father offered to let me wear his suit to the reception. It still looks good, he insisted, despite its 20 years and the triangular iron burn on its lapel. I resisted their implorations until I went to an internet cafe to read up on Richard McAllister, who's the writer. And this is the moment where I, as I'm reading this, get really excited. He's going to an internet cafe? He's setting a scene there? Uh, I had heard of him, of course, but had never read any of his books. With an emaciated teenager to my left liquidating scores of disposable video game civilians and a cologne reeking gentleman to my right listlessly browsing bestiality sites, I surfed through the life and works of Dick McAllister. And that's probably my favorite sentence in this passage um, because it's so extremely sensory um, the, the the image that we get of emaciation is extreme and the vision the smell is, is strong the cologne that's reeking uh, the the teenager is liquidating scores of disposable video game civilians and you imagine him kind of like being really active at the keys the other guy's listlessly browsing bestiality sites so that pair of liquidating and listlessly um, I feel like you get placed so precisely in the scene that it feels physical and and visceral, um, but it's also so excruciatingly lonely and depressing. Uh, These three people are sitting in a row, um, interacting with something, but they're not interacting with each other. But it's still vital and active, and we can see it. I surf through the life and works of Tick McAllister, he says. To cut a long story short, he was born, he lived, he wrote books, he inflicted suffering, and occasionally suffered himself. In Fall, his most recent memoir, a heartbreaking clenched jaw confession, he owned up to wife-abusing, extended drinking binges, and spectacular breakdowns. In his novel, Depth Sickness, I read, a lone shark shoots off his own foot on a hunting trip, then redeems his vacuous, vile life in recollection while waiting for help or death, both of which arrive at approximately the same time. I skimmed the reviews of the short story collections, one of which was called Suchness, and spent some time reading about Nothing We Say, McAllister's masterpiece, and the winner of a Pulitzer Prize for fiction. The novel was about a Vietnam vet who did everything he could to get out of the war, but cannot get the war out of himself. Everybody was crazy about it. It is hard not to be humbled by the honest brutality of McAllister's tortured heroes, one reviewer wrote. These men speak little not because they have nothing to say, but because the last remnants of decency in their dying hearts compel them to protect others from what they could say. It all sounded okay to me, but nothing to write home about. I found a McAllister fan site where there was a selection of quotes from his work accompanied by page upon page of trivial exegesis. Some of the quotes were rather nice, though, and I copied them down. Before Nam, Cupper was burdened with the pointless enthusiasm of youth. The best remedy for the stormy sky is a curtain, he said. On the other side of the vast milky windowpane sauntered a crew of basketball players, their shadows like a caravan passing along the horizon. Copper had originally set out to save the world, but now he knew it was not worth it. One of these days, the thick chitin of the world will break open and shit and sorrow will pour out and drown us all. Nothing we say can prevent that. I liked that one. The thick chitin of the world. That was pretty good. Chitin is a nitrogen containing polysaccharide related chemically to cellulose. (laughs) that forms a semi-transparent, horny substance and is a principal constituent of the exoskeleton or outer covering of insects, crustaceans, and arachnids. I just learned that today, so. Thought I would give you something useful. Uh, if you think about what actually happens at the surface of the scene, the character's just sitting still, typing, reading, um, but it's such an emotionally active consciousness. You can sense how the narrator feels about this guy, the suspicion, um, but the kind of flirtation that he's is uh, engaging in with this other writer. Um, and I found that really uh, exciting to read. And I'm just going to read um, a little bit from a recent story that I've been working on uh, in which a character is not doing a lot of talking uh, or interacting, but is thinking about uh, this type of interaction with art uh, and with people via static objects. So this uh, scene uh, starts at a party, and the main character, whose name is Cat and whose consciousness we're occupying as readers, um, is... uh, meeting up with some people she hasn't seen in a long time that she didn't know very well that she went to college with, one of whom, uh, it turns out, is a writer. So there have been some awkward party stuff happening before this. She swore she was about to speak when Damien Jameson Jones inserted himself into their circle, though she didn't see him at first. She was looking at the poignant, restless flicker of John's hand, his must-uneasy hair, when Brian squeezed her fingers. His own hand was suddenly clammy. Kids, Damian Jameson Jones said. He nodded at John, nodded at Brian, nodded at the girl with the fuchsia lipstick. Her nails were painted a marigold color. She clapped. DJJ, she said. In college, Damian Jameson Jones had worn a puffy winter jacket even in class, even in springtime. He'd had enormous, oddly colorless curls, rimless glasses, and a hostile blank. Kat used to see him in the student union, daring to sit with the famous poetess who provided over the creative writing department, daring to lean close to this famously frail poetess, to yammer and jabber and wave his shiny, puffy arms at her, to blink his punctilious, hostile blink as she stared silently into a cup of yellow soup. Now, Damian Jameson Jones wore tweed. Burgundy Tweed in Maggie First's aged aunt's enormous apartment, which is where the party is taking place. Grainy black-and-white Tweed and his enormous, oh-so-serious author photo. His book was actually called, Why? Why? A Memoir by Damian Jameson Jones. In the opening scene, Damian Jameson Jones awakes in a hotel room in Stockholm, shocked by the stark winter light. He is naked, but for the thin costume provided by an expensive sweat streaked sheet. He doesn't know where he is, how he got here. He leaps from the lovely light-soaked bed, paces the odd empty room. Still naked, he sits on a lucite desk chair, flips open his laptop, and is newly shocked to see that the light issuing from its blank screen matches the light of this Stockholm winter. It is just as pale, just as mean and sweet and austere. Of course, he doesn't know he's in Stockholm yet. He finds a matchbook, Googles the hotel's name, feels tears star prick his eyes when he realizes that the hotel is owned by a media magnate famed for his exploitive employment practices. He hears something behind him and is suddenly certain he's not alone. He leaps up. Sure enough, there is something beneath the streak sheet, something lumped and vibrating and bright. The light this lump emits is cool and strange. No one is here. The buzzing, the light, comes only from Damian Jameson Jones's phone. He picks it up. Someone speaks to him softly in Japanese. He does not understand the someone's words. It is a woman. A woman with a thrilling, trilling voice, brittle as a dead songbird's claw. But nonetheless, he knows how to answer. Why? He whispers. Why? To the caliphone, the unseen woman. Why? He is weeping now. And soon he realizes that the nameless woman is weeping too. Dushite, she whispers through her tears. I think that means why in Japanese. Dushite. Damien Jameson Jones nods, though no one can see him alone in his high white hotel. Why, he repeats, why? Kat remembered him asking the same question in their sentimentalism section ten years before. Why weren't they reading The Sorrows of Young Werther in the original German? Why Richardson but not Defoe? Why Deleuze but not a rigori? And why did Professor Matthews give A's to papers that were little more than regurgitations of the lecture notes? Damien Jameson Jones held one such paper aloft as he asked this, his puffy arm flopping and shimmering, his large eyed girlfriend in the seat beside him, staring at her shifting toes, her chin just perceptibly wobbling. Now, Damien Jameson Jones was saying it again. Why, he said, are we on the Upper East Side tonight, kids? And I'll just stop there. Um, thanks.